on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. Good morning, Dan Torres. Good morning, Buzz. I am uh, always, uh, my ears are always perked up when John Pucci, uh, for our crime and punishment segment, uh, joins us. John is a former federal prosecutor. He's a top flight lawyer, been named Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers, especially in white collar uh, arena so many times. And he's uh, with Bulkley Richardson and joins us to explain that which we find mystifying. Hello, John. Good morning. So, uh, Trump, Trump, Trump. Uh, what, what are the, what is it? We keep hearing more and more about perhaps what we're going to hear more and more about. What's the latest? Well, the latest thing that uh, comes to my mind is the indictment of an additional defendant in the Florida Carlago case. His name is Carlos de Valerio, uh, Oliverio. And while the, the allegations are not are familiar in the sense that they all relate to the indictment of Trump and his um, cohort, Walt Nada, uh, for uh, hiding uh, records that were supposed to be disclosed, turned over back over to the government and obstructing the government's subpoena of those records that were supposed to be remain in the White House or under federal control. All of that is familiar turf. But what, what's interesting to me is that um, Carlos D. Oliveira is just a regular everyday person. He's, he's like Walt Nada. He's sort of was a valet to Donald Trump uh, at Mar-a-Lago. He was elevated to quote unquote property manager there. And he, so he falls him, he finds himself, uh, I think he's in his fifties, in his fifties in a very dark space with a very dark boss uh, up to his eyeballs in big problems that are way past, you know, his um, his capacity, I think, to understand, grasp, uh, grapple with the pressures on all sides of him, legal fees, prison, you know, were probably un- completely unforeseeable to him when he landed the job of valet to Donald Trump and then was elevated to property manager. He probably thought of it as a godsend. He's a regular person. But he got caught up in this web of corruption and deception that is Donald Trump. And he's now under a very significant federal indictment. Um, the case is a very big case. It's a very expensive case. Trump is paying his legal fees, which puts him under pressure, again, not to cooperate. Uh, he's already been through a route with the government where he lied to the FBI, and he's indicted for that about the boxes of being involved in the boxes of these records. And so I think of him as a person like Walt Nada, who's also under indictment for related offenses who were in the in the wallpaper of life. I mean, they were not looking for a problem. They had an opportunity to work for the former president of the United States. They jumped at it, and all of a sudden they find themselves in this really overwhelming quagmire. Uh, I'd like and to follow on that, John Pucci, because so everyone knows this is the documents case, the one that there's 32 counts of willful retention of national defense information under the Espionage Act, is conspiracy to obstruct justice, false statement representation. I'm reminded of the Nuremberg trials. The purpose of the Nuremberg trials was to segregate those people who were just sort of 
following orders, understandably trying to please their quote-unquote superiors, and those people who actually orchestrated the offenses that we were talking about. When I think of Walt Nauta and Carlos de Oliveira, it kind of feels that way, like they're sort of foot soldiers who are caught in the web and before the court, right? Yes, I think the answer to that is yes. They each have a trapdoor they can escape uh, from being uh, fully prosecuted or going to jail, which is they can cooperate against Donald Trump. But the cost of that cooperation to them is vast. Uh, it's life-changing. Uh, so they're stuck. They're stuck either going down with the, with the boat, with the ship, with Trump facing almost certain, prosecu- certain prosecution and likely conviction in federal prison or jumping ship into the waters that surround it uh, that are filled with all sorts of antagonisms and hatreds and violence and fear, they may be true Trump followers. They may think that Trump is did not do anything wrong. They may think that he violated no laws. They, they may think he's being persecuted, not prosecuted. They may be true believers, but they're stuck in between just simply telling the truth, which is Trump's involvement in trying to destroy the videotape surveillance in the place, trying to destroy records, lying to the FBI, um, or or taking the risk of going down with the ship and serving a long term of prison. So they have an escape hatch that they can they can get to if they want to. Part of the problem here is the legal fees are so high, Trump's paying them, and the lawyers that have been assigned to them, effectively chosen for them, are Trump lawyers that have represented lots of different people in the January 6th cases in Washington, D.C. They're lawyers who have made a living on representing people in Trump world. And those lawyers are, are not going to, I don't believe, uh, bring to bear the kind of come to Jesus discussions that one has as a defense lawyer with clients that are in this position that have to make hard choices, meaning discussions about you have to consider cooperating here there's a 95% chance of conviction in federal court. You have the opportunity. You can make this right, but I can't promise you your fees will be paid, and I can't promise you your life will not be upended if you make the choice to cooperate. You may be at risk. I know Dan Torres has a question or comment for you, John, but I just have to squeeze this in. As an attorney, if you had a an affluent client who was wealthy enough uh, to hire you and attempt to pay the legal fees of a co-defendant of his or hers. Is that ethical for, for your client to be paying the legal fees for your client's co-defendant? Well, tech, in this, in this sense, it can, or it may or may not be in this instance, the fees are being paid by a PAC, not by Donald Trump personally. Um, so the, the relationship between Trump and that PAC is airtight, but I think it is ethical just as companies, uh, pay for, uh, legal fees for employees in grand jury proceedings on a routine basis. Uh, I think that it's the same situation and it can be done. Um, there's a potential for a massive conflict of interest, of course. Um, and it's very troubling that the lawyers will be chosen, have been chosen, uh, and clearly are part of Trump world and Trump lawyers for other defendants, such as in the January 6th prosecutions that are happening in Washington, D.C. So, yes, I'm troubled by it. Um, but on the other hand, it's not, un, it's not uncommon 
in a world uh, in the world of federal prosecutions that we live in. But the lawyers have a duty to the client only, and the lawyers have a duty to Nada and to uh, Oliveira in this instance to be straight shooters with them. And it may be that their clients are making the choices, you know, that that we find difficult to imagine, but are making the difficult choice to stand their ground. And if they go down with Trump, go down with their head high. That may be the way they look at it. This is Dan, uh, John. Um, I read a, a couple of articles uh, days ago about Carlos de Oliveira, and he uh, apparently sent a text message to another employee that said, oh, the boss apparently wants the servers cleaned or something like that. And I wanted to get your opinion on that type of evidence. Will that be what the prosecutors likely will use against them? Is that a key part of the evidence? Was that, because in, in my understanding of Trump, he never writes anything down, but he would say it verbally. So it's interesting that Carlos was willing to text something like that to another employee. And I'm thinking that that's what the prosecutors will use to go after him. That statement, which I read as well, <clears throat> is a classic co-conspirator statement. It's one person working with another person in the conspiracy, communicating with a third person in the alleged conspiracy about the very, very topic and central issue in the Mar-a-Lago case, which is the pre failure to preserve, produce the records and attempts to obstruct the investigation. So there's no question in my mind that as co-conspirator statement, a statement within the scope of the conspiracy relating to the acts that have been indicted, that it will be admitted into law uh, into the trial and the jury will get that statement. And it's a devastating statement, both for uh, the person who issued it, as well as uh, the person who receives it, because it implicates them with knowledge. And it's a devastating uh, uh, piece of evidence as to Donald Trump. Hmm. Um, and is it a defense from what I've heard about uh, the, the Donald Trump defense is like, hey, we eventually didn't delete these servers. We would turn them over. And what's the big deal that you said this thing? Because eventually nobody really actually did what was actually instructed, apparently, from my understanding. And all of the evidence was eventually turned over to the FBI. Well, first of all, I'm not at all confident that all the evidence has been turned over. For, for all anyone knows, Trump's got a special drawer and a special desk in some one of his golf clubs that's got a stack of additional records that have never been produced. So, but, but who knows on that? So putting that aside, um, I think that the evidence is, that evidence is going to be devastating to, you know, all these people, all three of these people that are indicted. I mean, that's, I think, the bottom line here. I think, I think the beauty of uh, what you're alluding to, Dan, from a prosecutorial perspective is what we're talking about is a request or an alleged uh, instruction by Trump to delete the Mar-a-Lago uh, security footage, which showed the boxes of classified documents being moved from a storage room. Right. Uh, that's what I think the, the most damning thing is. That, and now they have the security footage. Right, and now they have it. They've been able to turn it off. So that's not really a defense of, like, why are they being prosecuted? They eventually handed everything over to the police, and nobody actually an did intent, the wiping. It shows an intent to deceive, right? It shows an intent to so, deceive. So to your narrow, to your question, Dan, specifically, the, they're charged with conspiracy to obstruct justice, which means there was an agreement implied or explicit, an agree, implied in this instance, I'm sure, 
to obstruct justice. And, and a in a conspiracy, you don't actually have to have uh, the conclusion of the, the goal of the conspiracy of, uh, uh, have actually taken place in order to be guilty of conspiring to commit the crime. So if the three of us, for instance, in this radio show said, let's all meet at a bank after the show today, I have a gun, let's go rob this bank. Uh, and everybody, you and Dan and, and Buzz, and even Bill, wherever he is, all agree on tape, we're gonna meet you at the bank and help you rob the bank. And they come in and they arrest us before the bank robbery itself. We are still guilty of conspiring to commit uh, the bank with the bank fraud. That is having an agreement to the bank uh, robbery, an agreement to commit a crime is in and of itself a federal crime, uh, depending on what's agreed to. But it, the, it's the agreement that's the crime. And in this instance, even though they may not have destroyed the videotaping tapes or the uh, or, or other evidence there, it's the agreement to obstruct, which is the crime. And that's what's alleged in this instance. I think the three of us should turn state's evidence and blame Bill. <laughs> oh, Newman did it. I'm going to rat him out in the heart. <laughs> we are, this is our crime and punishment segment with the extraordinary John Pucci. Uh, he's, he's an attorney, a top flight attorney, but he's a great educator. We're going to take a break and be right back with Mr. Pucci. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Soy. You're sitting on it. You've heard of the tofu curtain? Meet the tofu chair. Well, sort of. We have sustainable seating at Talon Furniture, which sounds oh so boring, but these sofas and chairs, these love seats and sectionals are beautifully designed. So well made in a rainbow of upholsteries, beautiful fabrics and leathers that look good, feel good, and will last for decades. And they're sustainable with soy based foam, recycled steel springs, fiber fill made from recycled plastic bottles. But let's get back to how well-made and good-looking these sofas and chairs are. There are over 20 different sofas and chairs on display right now at Talon Furniture. So come sit around. You can stay as long as you like. Choose a sofa or chair that's on the floor or order the frame and fabric you want. It'll be here in six weeks or less. Talon Furniture, just down the hill from Amherst College. Sofas and chairs that are sustainable on the inside and on the outside, sensational. As in, beautifully upholstered. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation uh, in our crime and punishment segment with John Pucci in late July. 
Um, Jack Smith, the uh, special counsel, filed a superseding indictment um, that expanded the scope of the charges against Trump and an, another co-defendant. Um, and uh, we, we've been talking about this maintenance worker, Carlos de Oliveira, who has now been charged. What is a superseding indictment, John? So a superseding indictment is simply an indictment that adds new information, new charges, new facts to a pre-existing uh, in, uh, uh, indictment. So it's they're not unusual. This is probably in, I don't know, five or 10 or 15 or 20 percent of federal criminal cases, there's a superseding indictment issued. So what it means is that the grand jury, which in, returned the original indictment, the investigation of different elements of the charges that are suspect, the, sus, the suspicions of criminal wrongdoing, that grand jury investigation has continued. And at some point thereafter, after the original indictment is returned, the government asked the grand jury to issue a superseding indictment. That is, it supersedes the original indictment and adds uh, uh, charges, additional charges that weren't in the first indictment. So that happens as a matter of routine. It's not in every case by any means, but it's it's regularly uh, engaged in by the government. Um, and that's what happened in this case. They added in Nada uh, as an additional defendant, and they added in, they've now added in Oliveira. And with each of them, they've added in certain facts that they didn't previously have and certain legal elements of the legal theory that they didn't previously have in, in the original indictment. The other important ha- uh, thing that happened in July is that Judge Aileen Cannon uh, was asked by the Trump team to delay the trial until after the 2024 presidential election. And uh, the judge, Cannon, rejected that, but she agreed to push the start date from November to May of 2024. What are your thoughts about that? And I just want to add, Dan was saying during the break, he was asking if you were the defense attorney for Trump, what would you be doing as that May date um, uh, approaches? And if you were the prosecutor, what would you be doing? So I think that uh, any trial date that's set that far out in any case, first of all, let me say the fact that in a case of this complexity, and it is a complex case at Mar-a-Lago, if for no other reason that it involves uh, classified information, which triggers the application of something called SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, um, which really creates difficulties and obstacles to unrolling the criminal investigation quickly, that that kind of case, um, it's not at all a surprise to me that there's a May trial date. So it would take that long for the lawyers to engage with all the evidence, to review all the records. The government has listed 89 witnesses in the case. That's a lot of witnesses to get a handle on. These are busy lawyers. They have a lot of other cases. It's not their only case. So it doesn't surprise me And I don't think the government actually fought hard against a May trial date. But in the normal course, in a normal case, there are always many reasons and many spaces in which a judge will continue a trial date. He may continue a trial date because um, the the defense lawyers say they're not, they they can't get prepared adequately. He may, you know, uh, continue, he or she in this instance could, could continue the May trial date for any number of complex reasons. Under SIPA, there could be an appeal to the 
uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on, on issues that the parties can't resolve, and that could carve out time in a trial date. We've just come through the COVID crisis in which many trial dates were put off for years, literally a couple of years, because of the intervention of the COVID crisis, making it very difficult to put 12 people in a box, a jury box and decide a case. So there's, <coughs> there's an endless number of reasons. Um, this is why, Dan. Why a case would be con could be continued. And in this instance, uh, with SIPA, there's even more than the routine reasons that, uh, that it could be continued. I do think that if I am Trump, and I am not Trump, but if I were Trump, his end game, it seems to me pretty obviously, is to get real, get elected, or if we call it a re get reelected, and issue a pardon to himself to go over the top of all of these cases. Not can't get away from the state court cases. That's an interesting question, but get over the top and not go to trial in any either of the federal cases. The one the one that exists now in Mar-a-Lago, the one that's likely coming on January sixth. Get over the top and take a completely different tact. Get reelected, issue a pardon, and I think he he can do that. I think that's within the presidential power. It's certainly never been decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. And so delay, 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 always a friend to Donald Trump is his friend here as well. And maybe that if I can, if I can say this, the Trump card Ooh. that he pulls out to to negate the federal prosecutions. So if you're the prosecutor, what is your Trump card to prevent delay? My Trump card is to be very generous with discovery, give the defendants everything they could possibly want, make access to the records through SIPA compliance as clean as you can possibly do it, eliminate any argument that they haven't been cooperative, that they haven't been reasonable, and bend over backwards to force the process to work as best it can possibly work. So when they make a motion to continue, you're in front of a judge, and you have the facts of what you've done and how you've done it on your side. And I think that's about the best you can do. John Pucci, I, I just wanted to point out, um, when I, for nine years, I was litigating Guantanamo cases in the federal court in DC. Um, and almost everything that we did was classified. And here's what happens, what you're talking about under SIPA. So we would begin our, our hearing we talk about, well, we have a disagreement about time or whatever it was. And then when it came time to actually talk about the classified evidence, which was um, in a secured facility, the litigate, the court security team, the litigation security office would have transported from these classified documents from a secure location to a back door at the courthouse. And there's a special corridor that they would use that was improperly with guards and things like that brought up to the courtroom. Then if they would switch from the regular court computers to secure computers. Uh, they would close the door and put a court officer outside to make sure that nobody came in. There were marshals involved. And that happened virtually every month for my nine years just to deal with one document. I, I can't imagine. This is a president, a former president that they're talking about. It's going to be very complicated. Dan. And I also wanted to ask John Pucci before we go um, about Georgia. That is getting a lot of buzz that indictments will be coming down very soon and that they're ready to go. I just wanted you to touch on that. So let me 
go back and then I'll come forward to that. So there's one other card that, that Trump can play that would delay the case well past the election. <clears throat> and that is in the month before trial, he could go into court and advise the judge he's firing all his lawyers. That there's they're, they're not doing what he wants. They're ineffective. There's a breach of the relationship. He can't trust them to do what you know, the, do it the way he wants, and force the and, and force that issue forward. And a judge, it's it's is hamstrung from under from from doing anything other than allowing him to find new lawyers, at least in the first instance. Even if it seems obvious, he's delaying the trial uh, by doing this. Uh, it's an ace card. It's a trump card, if you will, that he can play in front of a judge. And the judge is really um, duty bound to make inquiry about it. But ultimately, you know, it's very, very problematic to force a defendant to proceed to trial with lawyers who he has said he has no uh, meaningful uh, professional relationship with and he can't work with anymore. So that's a big piece that's laying out there. Believe me, Donald Trump has thought about that. And believe me, the lawyers know it could happen. And so that's a big thing that could deter deter the May trial. Putting 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 strategy aside, ahead. that sounds very Trump-like to me. He fires people right and left, including his lawyers. And so, if you were the judge, would you give him a date by which to determine who his trial lawyers are going to be, like in December, and say, "I want you to declare it by then because I do not want to entertain a motion in May." I, I don't know what you'd do. I'd have to think about that. But I'll tell you this, the whole SIPA process would have to start over with the new lawyers. So if it's a six-month process for these lawyers that are in place to do the SIPA review of records and documents, and he fires those lawyers, then he's starting the SIPA clock again, and he could easily run out the clock uh, through the election uh, to get his new lawyers in place. So watch for that. I think that could easily happen. Um, as to Dan's question about Georgia, you know, it, it's the Georgia case, it seems to me, is clearly coming forward. I don't think the district attorney puts in all sorts of security around the courthouse in Georgia uh, and issues security orders uh, and, 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 lays, and tells people in her office not to come in in August. Uh, a lot of people not to come in disrupts the entire process of what's happening in that busy Georgia courthouse unless there's gonna be an indictment. Uh, and it's gonna be of Donald Trump. He's a target in the case, and may, maybe many others, but there's no way that if, there's, if, if she concludes not to issue an indictment that she's gonna go forward and set up all this security and bringing all this heavy duty uh, armed presence to protect people at her courthouse if her announcement's gonna be, we're not indicting Trump. So it seems to me, highly foreseeable, highly likely, if not a certainty that she's going to bring charges against Trump um, for his activities in Georgia relating to the, his attempt to change the vote there. Mm, she being the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis, we, have, we yes. don't have time to talk about the January 6th case, which is percolating by Jack Smith, a special counsel um, there in Washington, D.C. Uh, and of course, aside from the election meddling case, we also have the New York Manhattan cases, which for which he's already been indicted, and the E. Jean Carroll new lawsuit uh, claiming yet more defamatory statements by Trump. This guy's face in court. He is. It has really been a pleasure talking with you, John Pucci, and we are going to be right back 
we're going to be talking about the history of women mural in Northampton and its restoration right after these messages. sweet and clear is moonlight through the pines Other arms reach out to me You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State lawmakers have passed a $56 billion 2024 fiscal year budget. The budget includes a variety of new policies involving free community college tuition, school meals, and health care. Lawmakers are calling this budget a major win with record funding for various programs in the state. But they had also hoped for a different outcome for some pieces of legislation. One of the biggest pieces of legislation sparking debate was free community college tuition for nursing students and students over the age of 25. The $20 million legislation will provide free community college tuition for about 1.8 million Massachusetts residents who don't have a degree. Fiscal year 2024 budget now heads to Governor Moore Healy's desk for her signature. Two Connecticut men were arrested after a pursuit by state police Sunday night. A driver fled a traffic stop on I-91 in Hatfield, and shortly after, the vehicle was reported to have been in a crash near Exit 35 in Waitley, after which the two occupants of the vehicle abandoned the vehicle to flee on foot. They were found by police and charged with license plate violations, failure to stop for police, negligent motor vehicle operations, trafficking in cocaine, and breaking and entering. The Jones Library in Amherst is closed due to heavy flooding from Saturday night's storms. According to a release by Jones Library, a leak in the atrium flooded the main floor and into the lower level, and a large pipe in the basement burst, which caused flooding in the basement hallway and stack. Amherst Building and fire officials are inspecting the building to determine when the library can reopen. Mostly sunny today, low humidity, pleasant air out there, a high of 74 to 78. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s and 60s with an overnight low of 48 to 54. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 74 to 78. Up to 80 on Thursday with a mixture of sun and clouds and perhaps a shower in the afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. My baby boy was a very good sleeper. He would nap in the morning and nap again in the afternoon, so my routine became that I would drink the first half of the time I expected him to sleep so that I could pass out the second half. Even during my pregnancy, knowing that it might be harmful to the baby, I could not stop drinking. The fear of any harm to that child was not enough to make me stop. Sometimes I would try to go to the park with him, but I was becoming really fearful of people finding out what a sick person I was. 
Today, since I joined AA, I don't have that sensation anymore at all. I have a purpose in life today. I know who I am. I know where I'm going and I feel good about it. I can be a mother to my child and I can be a wife to my husband and I couldn't be any of those things when I was drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Uh, We are back, and thank you for joining us. You know, um, I am still considered a newcomer by many. I only came here in 1972, and I do remember the Northampton of the 70s and of the 80s, and I was always um, fascinated by, I would stand and look at, that iconic History of Women mural uh, in Northampton. It is being restored. And uh, with us to talk about it are Linda Bond and Susan uh, Pontius. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So um, let's talk about the restoration. Who's doing it? Why was it necessary? Right. Uh, it, it actually is being done by a prof- uh, the conservation is being done by a professional conservator, uh, Robert Datum. And it was necessary because it was damaged, I think, about a a year ago. Um, And uh, in such a way that we we needed a professional conservator to come in and uh, remove um, chemical that was put on it and then do infill painting. So that's what's happening right now. We're in the process. Well, thank you, Conservator. Who's actually doing the work? Uh, Robert Datum and uh, 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 Rebecca Muller, who's a local artist, and uh, then an assistant. Her name is Alanya. Yeah. Alanya is uh, helping out, but it's under direction of Robert Datum. So a little bit, Sue, about the history. When was the History of Women Bureau first done and by whom? It was done, uh, it was completed in 1980, but we began working on it in, I think, in 1978, and it was a a, a group of local women artists um, uh, finally narrowed down to to five uh, artists um, who uh, completed the Mural. We call ourselves the Hestia Art Collective. It was Linda Bond, Mariah Fee, uh, uh, Wednesday Sorokin, uh, Rochelle Shikoff, and myself. And uh, we did. Um, uh, we were interested in doing. Uh, it was Rochelle Shikoff uh, came up with the idea of doing some kind of mural that had some kind of um, a political or social meaning. And so we really wanted something that. Uh, um, related to our lives, but also really tied the community together as well. So we came up with a history of women in Northampton. We figured that would be something that everybody would, that would be enlightening and informative and that the community could get behind. And so we did, ended up doing original research uh, of uh, researching uh, various uh, women, and we're surprised ourselves to see how many women were involved in the founding of major institutions in in, uh, uh, in Northampton. Um, and so then we completed it in, in 1980. 
1980. And Linda Bond, you were part of that process. You remain involved with the mural. I certainly was. And uh, actually, there was a small restoration that happened in the late 80s because the wall had some um, cracks and damages. So Shelley and I came back and worked on that small project. And then as the mural kind of aged, we, we originally thought it had a lifespan of five years. And in 2003, um, the community was noticing that there was, dam you know, more, more faults in the wall and the painting was fading and a group of local artists uh, got together and raised money, and Rebecca Muller, who's helping with this project, uh, and a woman named Nora Valdez were the leads on that restoration. They contacted us, the original artists, and, and some of us were able to come and consult and help, and they repainted basically the whole mural, you know, just refreshed it and added a few new, um, with our permission, a few new faces of women who had had an impact in Northampton since the time that we painted the original painting. So it was, it was updated um, in that way and refreshed, and it has had an enormously beautiful lifespan uh, until last fall when I was actually visiting Northampton and I noticed that there was some unusual... Uh, dripping and white coating on the on the figures, and we haven't exactly figured out what happened, but it appears that there had been some graffiti uh, sprayed on the wall, and um, that someone was working to try to remove it and then protect the painting with some kind of coating, which had a bad effect on the surface. So um, we decided as a group to try to investigate how we could repair it because it wasn't in a condition that we thought would want to remain uh, on the wall. So uh, Sue is, has been uh, the director of public art in San Francisco, so had a lot of experience with this kind of thing, and found Robert. This kind of thing meaning vandalism, or this kind of well, thing like murals? Dealing with public art. Built dealing with public art. <laughs> and, you know, grant writing and contracts and so on. And so um, she took a lead on finding Robert, and, and Rebecca and Robert met at the wall, and he had some ideas about how to repair it. And uh, they did some tests last November, which seemed to work. And then we did, we spent the last several months fundraising and reached our goal with a number of grants and major donors and a lot of uh, small donations, which really helped us um, raise the funds that we needed to do this work. So, Susan Pontius, the, why is it important that we memorialize that this mural be preserved? For future generations? Well, I think the main reason is that the community wants it. This is a, a, a piece that is iconic to Northampton. Um, it has, since its creation, um, uh, I've been amazed actually at the level of community support this, this mural um, has had. So I think the first reason is its importance to the community. 
um, as, um, as a work of art and as an icon for the city. Um, it also is, um, it celebrates the city's um, history, and it's often a history that's not told. Um, you know, uh, historically, uh, we have the story of our fathers and our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers, but not necessarily our mothers and our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers and our great-grandmothers. And it's fascinating to the role that, um, you know, Northampton, we, we did confine our history to just Northampton. And it's, it, and you can see that it's a microcosm for really the, the whole country, uh, what's happened in many communities. I think all of us can tell stories of the women that uh, we uh, knew and what they have accomplished. And um, we have been, been able to celebrate. And it's not just the named, but the unnamed. Uh, the women who worked in the, uh, you know, in the factories, in the home, uh, uh, in the, f you know, in agriculture, uh, as well as those women who are named, who were artists, or, um, you know, like uh, Harriet De Rose, who uh, started the Northampton Gazette. You know, people who we do we know their names, but we also know that all of these women. Uh, worked in 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 some way in the community that that made the community. Linda Bond, the Hestia um, group. Um, how, how involved are all of those artists in this restoration, or are they? Well, everyone was contacted, and everyone agreed that we should try to do something. Um, the main, uh, Sue, Sue and I have been primarily the ones involved in the preparation, the fundraising, along with Rebecca. And Rebecca, uh, you know, really took ownership of the mural as well because she was um, essential in the restoration 20 years ago. And she lives in Northampton and has been such a uh, wonderful resource and has just put in hours and hours of time. So uh, Sue and, and Rebecca and I sort of called ourselves the Hestia Restoration Collective. Um, Mariah Fee, who is uh, another, uh, so, so Mariah lives in New York, Shelley lives in Munson, and Wednesday lives out in um, Stockbridge. So they haven't been close by. Um, Sue, however, flew from California to be here. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, so Mariah came up for a few days. She's, she's here uh, till she's leaving this afternoon. Uh, Wednesday was here uh, on the weekend. And Shelley's been involved in another project, so we haven't really seen much of her. But I would say Sue and I have been really leadership on this uh, part of the project. We are so grateful for your leadership in this important project. We're going to come back uh, right after this break. We're going to talk about the Hestia mural. We're going to talk about a wall walk. We're going to talk about what we can do to support the work of these incredible uh, artists and this restorative project that affects us all so much. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are uh, discussing with Linda Bond and with Susan Pontius the uh, iconic, it's a great word for it because there's no other word that accurately describes uh, what a powerful influence the history of women mural is um, for so many of us. I think anybody in Northampton or that comes to Northampton is aware of the mural, has stood there and looked at it and appreciated its existence. And now that it is being restored, um, there is going to be a walk of some sort, Linda Bond. Could you tell us what that plan is? Well, we thought that since um, the restoration is nearly completed, uh, we we hoping by Friday everything is is uh, finished. But we, we are having a... Um, little gathering on Wednesday evening at 5.30 at the wall to talk about the restoration process and uh, our plans for the future and a little bit of the history of the painting and the, um, the women who were depicted in the painting. Uh, so anyone who's interested in that can come by. We are trying to continue to raise funds. There is a... Um, a banner hanging on the fence of on the Masonic Street side of the parking lot, um, or the area where we're we're working, that has a QR code that people can use to go to the GoFundMe um, website and contribute. Uh, any amount would be helpful, and we're hoping that we can continue to um, build this fund so we can maintain the mural down the road. Um, 
That's really interesting. I, I want to explore that a little bit. I mean, it is a timeless uh, set of images that are there. The mural itself is timeless, which is why it continues to be restored. But it isn't timeless in the sense that it's immune from uh, damage over time, hopefully not intentional damage like vandalism that you may have been describing earlier, but just weather, just what happens to anything that stays outside for a long time. So you're talking when you talk about this fund, you really want monies to be continue to be made available to maintain this in the future so it is in fact timeless. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. And you know, we uh, original artists are getting older. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not as easy for us to jump on the Let scaffold. Let me see 1980 2023. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're hoping that there is um, a way to turn over the responsibility uh, of maintaining this uh, mural to townspeople who are interested in seeing it. Um, you know, it, is, it has become a landmark. We, we all over the country run into people who, when we mention Northampton, say, oh, I know that mural, it's amazing, you know. And people are coming by the site now and saying, we're so glad to see this being restored. Um, we have one of the, one of the women in the, uh, depicted is Helen Kiley, who is a scientist. And her niece, Maureen, has contacted us, and she actually came by the wall with some goodies the other day and, um, and is really excited to see that things are, you know, that we're continuing to maintain this, um, this image. So, yeah, I think um, our hope, we, we're, we're just all so gratified and proud to see that this, this painting is still surviving. You know, my daughter was just born and she is the baby in the picture, you know. <laughs> so it's kind There's of... another layer of <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Look at that. That's Linda Bond's daughter. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and we want her to remain there in perpetuity. Yeah. Right. So, uh, Susan Pontius, in the couple minutes that we have left, you are so immersed in the world of public art. <laughs> you know, um, why public art? Well, I think public art is really um, uh, the face that the com the um, that a city or a community puts on celebrating its culture and its identity. Um, it's um, uh, you know an It's it's free, so there. It's you know it's 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 art for the for everyone, and um, uh, so it's it's really. Im you know, important in terms of uh, uh, making cities livable, making um, our uh, celebrating our culture, celebrating uh, our artist community. I always love it when I'm in a city and it's gray and I'm walking along and all of a sudden there's this huge splash of color. And for, you know, at least a half a block I can, as I approach it, I can, and then I can stand before it and see what the content of it is. It, it really just enriches life. Exactly. I think it really adds to our life. So one more time, tell me how people can access the GoFundMe page to contribute to not just the present restoration, but the future restorations of the History of Women mural. Well, I think if you Google Hestia Restoration GoFundMe, you will... H-E-S-T-I-A. You will come up with the page, or you can stop by the 
uh, mural site and scan the QR code that's on the banner that's hanging. And Wednesday, uh, tell us one more time what's going to happen and what time it's going to happen. So when this Wednesday at 5.30, we're going to have a little celebration and uh, talk about the restoration and the history of the mural. So anyone, all, the public is welcome. We're hoping that people will come by and uh, it'll be a hour-long probably uh, event and people can come by and meet us and meet Robert, who's been doing the restoration work, and he'll speak a little bit about his process. Well, listen, Linda Bond, thank you so much for being a part of the Hesker Group and your colleagues that created this mural. Susan Pontius, thank you so much for everything you're doing to make sure that it gets restored. It is an important part of our lives. And the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Linda and Susan, walk the walk. <laughs> Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off today, and this is our segment, which I so look forward to every month, which is uh, talking to somebody who actually is on the mark. That's Senator Paul Mark joins us. Hello, Paul. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, you right now are in Dalton. Is that right, Senator? Yes, the beautiful town of Dalton, Massachusetts. Yes. Um, actually, <laughs> there's so much about Dalton that people don't know, but it is a really interesting sort of bedroom community to Pittsfield. Is that a fair description? It, it is, and it's the home of Crane Paper, which if you've ever touched a dollar bill of, actually, excuse me, if you've ever touched an American piece of currency, paper currency, it originated in Dalton at Crane Paper. All U.S. currency paper has been printed, has been uh, manufactured in Dalton since, I think, 1793, like for a very long time. <laughs> and, and somebody once said, the best rags in the world go into making this. <laughs> well, if you ever want to win a bet with someone, you're in a strange place. Uh, ask them. Uh, I bet you you have something from Massachusetts in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. I'll remember that. So um, you and the legislature have been very busy, and we have a budget, right? We have a budget, finally. on the Not the last day possible, but on the last day of what is normally uh, when, when the formal sessions go to, July 31st in August. We can come back into session, but just traditionally... We only have informal sessions, which means there's no quorum, so there's not a recorded vote. Uh, yeah, so so 
31 days after the fiscal year began, but uh, the latest that I've seen other than the COVID year. But finally, in the books, we went till I think about 10 p.m. last night and uh, got that done and got a, a supplemental budget done as well with some of that farm relief. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff happening. Uh, and just so people know, so you did pass uh, a temporary budget to keep the government running while you were uh, negotiating what the actual final budget was going to look like, right? Exactly. So, so nothing like in Washington where there's threats of shutdowns or, or threats of furloughs or any of that stuff. No, we, we, we made sure that the July month was funded with what they call like a one twelfth budget. So all operations continue. And then we also earlier this week, or actually earlier last week, we sent the governor another budget just to keep things going through August. And then she has now 10 days to review the full fiscal year budget. And uh, I, I imagine she's going to sign most of it, but she, she might have some changes she wants to, wants to suggest, or she might veto some things that she doesn't approve of. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. It's generally not been contentious with any of the previous two governors I, I've served with, there's, there's always a couple of things that we disagree on, but but I'm hoping it'll go pretty smoothly this time. Yeah, most of it is ironed out before this point, right? That's why in sometimes, like this, it took a longer time to get the budget actually passed, right? Yeah, I, I, I think more with, with Governor Healy, there might be some things she wishes had been included that weren't, um, as opposed to, why did you put this in? And I, I think one of the reasons it was it was later than normal was just watching revenue, just watching how revenue has come in. And we had in April kind of an unexpected drop-off that surprised a lot of people, but I guess wasn't a big surprise to Ways and Means and, and, and Secretary of Administration and Finance. And just making sure that there was no repeat in May or June. And it seems like things have been stable. And we didn't get it finished, but there's also two versions of a tax cut package in the works. And when you're thinking about making a tax cut, you want to make sure that it's something that's permanent, that we have the money going forward, that we're not going to not gonna scramble to, to either cut programs or to try to raise taxes uh, to make up for that, because it's just not going to happen. <laughs> so if you're going to make a permanent tax cut, you, you want to make sure that we can we can permanently uh, afford it as a state. It's important. So I think I think that's part of the slowdown. Was just making sure, you know, where are we, and 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 that we're doing things that are going to be sustainable in the long term. Well, let's sort of zoom in a little bit. We're in Western Massachusetts. You, Senator Paul Mark, you are the uh, uh, your district is the Berkshire, Hamden, Franklin, and Hampshire district, and that's fifty-seven communities, fifty-seven mm-hmm. cities and towns. Here in Western Massachusetts, and I'll, I just want to divert for one minute. Uh, there is a concert that I'm going to come in to see tonight. Um, I had to plan my route because in Conway mm. there was some serious road damage. In Deerfield, there's serious road damage. I live in the hill towns, and for me to get to Amherst to see this concert, I had to make sure that those roads have been repaired. Lots of damage during the deluge. After deluge, we've been suffering so. What's the story with funds to repair and maintain our roads? Yeah, so so we've had a lot of damage throughout the region, both to infrastructure and to farms. And yeah, you mentioned Conway specifically has been hit pretty hard. Uh, the town of Clarksburg, city of North Adams. And so we had already been working on a road package. We do a road package every year. We call it Chapter 90. And it's a formula that distributes money to all of the municipalities. And, and generally, 
we do 200 million a year. Sometimes it goes a little higher, but but in in general, it's it's 200 million dollars a year. And this session, we added 150 million in more targeted relief and, and uh, more more targeted uh, finances. And and one of those places was 25 million for grants that is intended for some of the smaller communities. And then when I had the Senate president, I had the chair Ways and Means, Senator Rodriguez, out to Western Mass, in, into the Berkshires, and they listened. I had, I had like a little municipal conference, and they listened to some of the town leaders. What came up to them was the grants are awesome, but in a town of fewer than 2,000 people, we often don't have full-time staff, and we don't always have the ability to apply for these grants and have the aid and know-how. And so we came up with this concept of an additional $25 million in formula funding that is targeted only to the rural communities. And so the Senate did that after the House had acted. The House the House did a great job. The House passed what came out of the committee. But then when we heard this additional outcry from some of the smaller towns, we threw in another $25 million, And I was really happy to be put on one of these conference committees. When there's a difference between the House and Senate, you pick three reps and three senators. And it's the first time I've been on one. And, and to be on one within six months of my tenure in the Senate, I think, was a big deal. And was really happy that we ended up including both. We included the grant money and the pure formula base. So some of the smaller towns are going to get this extra money coming directly to them. And the smallest towns are going to be who qualifies. And so then you go back into the budget and we also threw in 50 more million for road funding based purely on road miles. And so in that case, everyone, whether it's Northampton, Greenfield, Pittsfield, Boston, they're going to have the ability to tap into that 50 million, but it's going to be based on mileage, whereas the traditional formula takes into account population, takes into account workforce, and so kind of skews against uh, the smaller communities. And so I think the total road funding is going to be really helpful to some of the smallest communities. And then additionally, we're going to still be fighting to see with FEMA, do we qualify for the emergency disaster relief? And if not, what do we have to do as a state legislature to make sure that towns like Conway that just, you know, just don't have the money to cover uh, disaster relief, that they're going to get what they need as, as, as quickly as possible. I, I think that folks, anybody who lives in a small town of the sort that you're mentioning, you know, that have 2,000 and under for a population or, or maybe 3,000 and under for a population, we are familiar in the best of times. As much as I love what our Massachusetts legislature provides for communities relative to what a lot of other legislatures don't provide. Chapter 90 monies are always slow to come in. It's always a huge problem for for um, uh, select boards and small towns to try to plan. And so it is really gratifying during these difficult times when we're having extra burdens caused by, well, climate and, well, just say weather. It is really important that we have the kind of relief that you're talking about. Uh, about and you, Senator Mark, I know that you continue to fight. Uh, things like roads are what government is there for. I mean, who else is going to make <laughs> right. them, right? Yeah, no, exa- exactly. If we don't step up, then then nobody else is going to. And like in 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 Asheville specifically, they might double what they normally get. Is is what I'm hoping. And it is is a, a community that small that can use every penny and knows how to stretch every penny as far as possible. That yeah, as, as Smaller towns often bank their road money because it's not enough to undertake a project one year. And so if if in the next six to 12 months, the amount that Asheville gets is twice as much as normal, then hopefully as they're planning out projects, that, that's, that's going to help. And then 
yeah, with Conway specifically, we're seeing some some interesting things. I think in Williamsburg as well that that there's a couple of private bridges that have that have washed away, and so trying to figure out how to help people at the end of a road that maybe share ownership of a private bridge because right now they're I don't know how they're getting up with anything right because it, right. it, it's 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 daunting to think of some of these things that you don't think about except when a disaster hits. Yeah, it's it's daunting, indeed. Also, uh, you've been focused on farm relief. That so many of our I have read that seventy two uh, farms in this region, um, uh, probably within uh, Franklin, Hampshire, Northern Hampton, seventy two farms suffered devastation. Uh, I don't know as much about out in the Berkshires, but I know that damage has been done. What's being done to help those farms, which are private, but which we all rely on uh, for our food (laughs) and our economies? Tell us what's been being done. No, exactly. And and, and traditionally with disaster relief, they're often available to get some grants and and some loans. But when faced with the possibility of you're going to miss the entire season and potentially depending on what we find out in terms of contaminants, what got out there, they might they might miss next season as well. Um, you got to keep these businesses going. I mean, these are these are small businesses. They're often family businesses. They're sometimes generational local businesses that have been in towns like Conway for a very long time. And so, what we're coming up with and what did get uh, approved, at least by both chambers of the of the legislature last night, is is a twenty million dollar reserve that will be available in coordination with private funding that is also being raised. And so the governor came out and she announced this program where people can donate, people or businesses can donate to try to offer some relief. So, for example, tomorrow, Senator Ed Markey is going to be in Conway, and I'm, I'm going to join him. And he's going to tour uh, one of the farms that was hit pretty hard. I think they've had a GoFundMe, and they've been meeting their goals. And so if, if they end up getting where they need to be, Awesome. They don't need to tap into this reserve. But if it turns out, oh, man, we're, we're about $30,000 short, then this is where the reserve can come in and try to help them get through the season. And I think it's the first time it's the first time I've seen it done um, in, in Massachusetts. Anyway, I don't know what they do out west when, when uh, in the Midwest when some of those giant floods hit. And what's also really good about it is it's also going to apply to the frost that hit earlier in the year. So there was a frost in May that caught people by surprise and you're already in the middle of growing season and if it killed what you had planted you're going to be able to qualify because as you mentioned what this is really about is weather is weather is changing weather is becoming more and more unpredictable in a way i think none of us have seen in our lifetimes and we're going to need to do things of course to try to mitigate our impact on how weather is changing but we are also going to have to respond now to this new reality that seems to be uh, becoming more and more normalized I have to ask, is the Conway Farm the Natural Roots Farm? Yeah, it is, yeah. So that's that horse-powered vegetable farm in Conway, which is really, it's just an important uh, resource for everyone in that region, and yet it got decimated. It got slammed. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that its GoFundMe is is uh, is helping out. So will there be any money other than the specifically targeted uh, farm relief funds of $20 million and the road funds you described before. Anything else uh, in the budget to assist uh, with the damage that's being done by these storms? Not yet. And so the problem is we don't know yet if we 
qualify for the FEMA emergency declaration, and I'm hearing that it actually is each storm individually because it's technically been like two or three rainstorms in the last month. And so we have to find out if we meet a minimum threshold. It's like it's, I think it's $12.5 million, uh, for the state. And so if we meet that threshold, great, funding starts flowing from the federal government, but then there still ends up being a piece that ends up the state has to match and sometimes the local communities have to match. And so I remember back in Hurricane Irene, we kept sending money as we learned the total amounts to reimburse some of the towns. And I was looking back through my my history of, of filing amendments. And the last funding I got for Irene, and Irene happened in 2011, um, was in 2018. I was still getting reimbursements for Buckland and Charlemont. And so trying to make sure that we do this in a way that doesn't take seven years and maybe in 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 the fall when we have some more numbers and we know what the federal government is going to do, trying to get some kind of a down payment that, 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 that these communities can tap into in, in the short run. And then I also learned and relearned that gravel and dirt roads don't fall into the disaster relief. And so uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is, is, Gravel yeah. and dirt roads don't <laughs> yeah, fall into don't disaster fall in. relief? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Conway, uh, the town of Beckett, I think, they're both approaching a million dollars already in in rebuilding some of these gravel and dirt roads. And so... Why don't they... Yeah. I don't understand why they don't qualify for relief. That's our roads. I have no idea. Yeah, you would think a road is a road. And when I think about a federal emergency act i'm looking around the country and i don't think most of the country at least land-wise is as built up and as good in terms of infrastructure as we are here in massachusetts so i don't quite know why that is but i imagine it dates back to some bizarre deal that happened in congress 80 years ago it's just crazy well we are talking to (laughs) senator paul mark he represents the berkshire hamden franklin and hampshire district and the 57 cities and towns of which we're all part, mostly a part. Uh, we're going to be back with Senator Mark right after this. Stay with us. In a homemade boat, because that's the only thing we got left that'll float. It's already over all the wheat and oats, two feet high and rising. How high's the water, mama? More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Art Walks, Holyoke Mills, Cars and Coffee. What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. 
Arts Walk in Brattleboro, Friday, August 4th. Arts Night Out in East Hampton, Thursday, August 10th. In Northampton, August 11th. Arts Walk Greenfield, Friday, August 25th. Get walking. Blues legend Robert Johnson's 97-year-old stepsister, Annie Anderson of Amherst, reads from her book, Brother Robert, Growing Up with Robert Johnson, with Blues Banjo by Hubby Jenkins, Saturday, August 26th at Bombex. Cars and Coffee at the Mill District in North Amherst, Sunday morning, August 20th. Vintage, custom, and exotic cars. Coffee by Futura Coffee Roasters. Cheeses of France, a dive into French cheese, culture, and history. August 14th at Provisions, North Amherst. This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool. What's Going On is presented by Provisions. Wine, beer, cheese. Free tastings Friday 4 to 7 at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton, in the Mill District in North Amherst, and at the Longmeadow Shops. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are talking with uh, Senator Paul Mark on our On the Mark segment. Uh, Senator, our next guest uh, will be Todd Gazda, who's the executive director of the uh, Collaborative for uh, Educational Services, which I think 37 local school districts um, are provided uh, service, I guess. That's why it's called educational (laughs) services, by the Collaborative. And I'm going to be talking to him about what it does and how it does it. But um, what provisions were made in this budget that was just passed last night at about 10 o'clock um, for education? Yeah, so a, a big win of interest locally was the rural school aid went up to $15 million. And so there's a line item that didn't exist five, six years ago. I think we got it up to maybe $6 million last year, and so we've just about tripled it. And we were really excited the governor proposed seven point five. First governor to propose anything. Uh, the House got up to ten million, which was awesome. And then we were able to get fifteen in the Senate, and the fifteen million was what came through conference committee. And so that's you know triple the relief that is going to be available to our local small town schools. Uh, the regional school transportation costs we got up to ninety percent. The House, I give them full credit, got a hundred percent, and unfortunately that did not make it through conference committee. But ninety percent is also, I think, one of the highest I've seen in my 13 budgets. And the Promise Act, we, we continued on the on the commitment of, of, of that, uh, coming through with, I think, the highest amount of Chapter 70 education funding in history. And then on the higher ed side, which I know you and I care about a lot, especially community colleges, the governor's plan to do free community college for anyone over 25 trying to get back into school and finish a degree or, or do some kind of workforce training. We put $20 million towards that. We put a bunch of money towards nursing programs to make them affordable or free at community college level and a down payment on the possibility, the hopeful possibility, of making community college free outright in the next couple of years. Uh, Dan, can you imagine when government is actually doing things to help people? I don't know what that is, but I, I've heard about that. Is that actually happening? I, I, I know. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you, too. But, um, no, I, I think it's just so important that uh, the attention be paid to it. May I interrupt that Please. with the comment I, I saw last night? So I was watching Rachel Maddow last night, and she gave a screen showing that every governor in this, the United States of America has more positive uh, views from their constituents than negative. Every single governor, Democrat, Republican, people seem to be satisfied with the state of their state and their governors as uh, opposed in the to entire President country. Biden? 
Well, no. Well, her claim was Biden isn't getting any of the credit of reopening the economy and doing all of that. But it seems like a large percentage of people are happy. And the most popular governor is actually a Republican from Vermont. But even Massachusetts, Mora is has higher positives than negatives. Um, and that's true of every governor in the entire country. How do you account for that, Senator Paul? I, I think part of it is the availability of, of federal funding that has come through and has made our job so much easier in the last three years. And so it is nice when you have money to distribute that you did not have to raise taxes for. That that makes you pretty popular. Yeah. Um, I, also, I also think people are more engaged. People are more engaged than we've seen. And so if you want to be in office, no matter what level you're in, I, I think you have to be responsive. You have to be out there and, and getting to know people. So hopefully that's part of what is happening and then even what I've, I've always seen traditionally, Congress itself as a body polls horribly. People hate Congress. It, it polls like 25 percent popular. But if you poll Jim McGovern, Richie Neal, you know, whoever your local person is, well, we love them. <laughs> yeah. We like our person. We just we hate the body. And, 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 and so, you know, it's funny. And it seems like local government, uh, your governors and your state legislatures are doing things that people are recognizing as good for the community. Well, which they is affect keeping my up. life. Well, they affect my life more directly than what Congress is yeah. doing and debating because you're seeing it on television or within 10 second sound bites. And, you know, it's just usually flame throwing and they're not really getting anything done. But that at the local level, things are being done. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, Senator Paul Mark. Uh, let me see. What affects me more, Hunter Biden's laptop or the roads that I have to go on to get to work, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Or the community but college thing, which I'm, I'm glad to hear that that got passed. And that's uh, that's an investment. And I know people want to go further than that um, in the conversations we oftentimes have with uh, MTA president Max Page. But I think it's a step forward in the sort of vision to say, look, 25, haven't gotten a degree before. The state is willing to invest in community college or job training, which I think is a step forward. And I know that Senator Mark has worked so hard as a as a member of the House um, and as the chair on student debt uh, subcommittee, uh, focusing on uh, the fact that community colleges and all public colleges, they fulfill dreams. They are the American dreams. They help people reach uh, a level of satisfaction and fulfillment and affordability to have the kind of life that we all were promised. And at the same time, what happens in Washington so much is just partisan nonsense to keep people getting elected again. I know you, uh, Senator Mark, you're, you're committed to the local, right? I am. And, and just mentioning the college, just I've seen at the classes at GCC that you and I have both taught, I've seen kids go from student at GCC, associate's degree, to Smith. And to, first of all, you already save so much money in the two years. If now it's free, or if, if in two years it's free, just the, the ability to wipe out the possibility of debt because of programs like this, I wish it had been there when I was a kid. Now, I was, I was still, I was lucky that eventually I got most of it paid for by, by the place I worked. And then I think about my father, who at, in his mid-40s, got laid off from the job in the warehouse. Boy, if he could have gone back to community college for free and got some kind of a credential qualifying him, him for future employment, what a, what a difference it could have made in all of our lives. It's really true. They, they are gems. And, uh, and you know, I want to thank you uh, again, once again, as I have for uh, so many times, for so many years, for all the work that you've done to make uh, 
people's dreams come true uh, by helping them get through college without the kind of crippling debt that nobody deserves for getting educated. Yeah. We, they deserve medals, not debt. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they make us all better. Paul Mark, thank you once again for joining us and spending time out of your busy schedule. Uh, he's in Dalton, Dan. He only has 56 more communities to visit today, and he'll be <laughs> all set. And thanks again for your work in passing this budget, and especially the rural-looking education, farm, road funds that are, make our lives better. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. See you next month. We'll be right back with Todd Gasta. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State lawmakers have passed a $56 billion 2024 fiscal year budget. The budget includes a variety of new policies involving free community college tuition, school meals, and health care. Lawmakers are calling this budget a major win with record funding for various programs in the state, but they had also hoped for a different outcome for some pieces of legislation. One of the biggest pieces of legislation sparking debate was free community college tuition for nursing students and students over the age of 25. The $20 million legislation will provide free community college tuition for about 1.8 million Massachusetts residents who don't have a degree. Fiscal year 2024 budget now heads to Governor Moore Healy's desk for her signature. Two Connecticut men were arrested after a pursuit by state police Sunday night. A driver fled a traffic stop on I-91 in Hatfield, and shortly after, the vehicle was reported to have been in a crash near Exit 35 in Waitley, after which the two occupants of the vehicle abandoned the vehicle to flee on foot. They were found by police and charged with license plate violations, failure to stop for police, negligent motor vehicle operations, trafficking in cocaine, and braking and entering. The Jones Library in Amherst is closed due to heavy flooding from Saturday night's storms. According to a release by Jones Library, a leak in the atrium flooded the main floor and into the lower level, and a large pipe in the basement burst, which caused flooding in the basement hallway and stack. Amherst Building and fire officials are inspecting the building to determine when the library can reopen. Mostly sunny today, low humidity, pleasant air out there, a high of 74 to 78. Mostly clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s and 60s with an overnight low of 48 to 54. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 74 to 78. Up to 80 on Thursday with a mixture of sun and clouds and perhaps a shower in the afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. 
Fitting in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Childhood gives way to adolescence and you want to explore nearly every new thing you encounter or master one thing. Hartsbrook education gives you time to breathe and focus. Learning is unhurried and intentional and never institutionalized. Subjects are often integrated, studying history through the lens of architecture, for example, or social studies by working for food justice. Hartsbrook prepares you to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for yourself and your community. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Oh, yes, we do. Uh, and this is our time of the month, and it, we, we're just so lucky to have Todd Gazda, who's the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services here that, that serves, uh, what, 37 of our di local districts? Todd? 37 member district, districts here in Hampshire and Franklin County. And we always have you here. You're an expert in education, but we've never really talked about what do you do? What does a collaborative <laughs> actually do? What services does it actually provide? To whom does it provide it? Let us learn a little. You know, it's really kind of interesting. So this is, I'm going into my third year as the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services here in Northampton. Uh, and I can remember, um, you know, when I got the job, uh, my son was nine at the time, and I had been superintendent for nine years. It was the only job he had ever known me in. And he could kind of wrap his head around what a superintendent did. You know, we had one in our town where we live. Um, so he understood. Uh, but he said, Dad, what does an executive director do? And so, you know, I kind of thought about it. And I said, well, buddy, uh, you know, it really comes down to this. I now get to get up in the morning and just try to make the world a better place. And I have an amazing amount of really smart, really creative, really caring people to help me make that happen. You want to not get in their way. That 100%. So, you well, know... first of all, I want to say... You're not doing a great job on keeping the world as being a fantastic place right now. There's a lot of times that we see it's failing miserably, but... Uh... We keep chipping away, and we are brave in the attempt. Uh, and so it's one of those things where, you know, for us, um, you know, yeah, 
we are making the world a better place, one person at a time, one community at a time, one school at a time. Uh, and we focus on, you know, the things, a really holistic um, view of public education. At, our, at its core, uh, the collaborative was created. Uh, there are, let me back up just a minute, there are 24 educational collaboratives in the state of Massachusetts. And so they are <clears throat> established by legislation, uh, and they're a way for school districts to group together, uh, and it primarily revolves around special education programming. So they'll form, say, an out-of-district autism program because there's not enough capacity in a single district uh, to support a program, but if you pull seven districts together, then you have the numbers to support, say, an autism po program. Or most of those 24 collaboratives have roughly 37 districts they serve? Oh, no. No, we are the biggest uh, in number of districts. We are the big, biggest in geographic size, and we are the biggest in return uh, with respect to total revenue. It sounds like um, some big challenges. It is. It is. But it also, you know, more than that, it brings big opportunities for us to really have an impact. Um, so those 24 member districts focus primarily on programs, uh, behavior programs for special education students or autism programs for special education students or specialized programming. Uh, we do have two programs, uh, now three. We're opening a new one, or we're absorbing a new one in Franklin County this year. Uh, we have Heck Academy, which is a traditional special education day school, uh, and it has about 25 to 30 students, and it's here in Northampton on Pleasant Street. Uh, we also have the Mount Tom Academy, which is located on uh, Greenfield Community College's campus, and that's an alternate high school program. It's pretty small. It's around 10 kids. Uh, and those are for students who aren't on, aren't on IEPs, uh, individualized education plans, um, but they just haven't met with success in a traditional public school setting for a variety of reasons. And this provides an opportunity for more individualized instruction, uh, individualized support. They can tap into the resources at Greenfield Community College through uh, maybe doing enrollment classes, uh, and they have the ability to take um, advantage of the, the facilities at Greenfield Community College. And this year, we uh, are absorbing a program that's been up at um, Greenfield Community College uh, for a number of years uh, called the Beacon Program, uh, which does a lot of work in workforce development, again, uh, for students who may be struggling a little in the traditional path pathway, and it provides opportunities for internships uh, and other things uh, so that they can meet with success. What is workforce development? Workforce development is like job trainings and internships uh, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, it's a lot, there's a very entre entrepreneurial bent to it. So they develop businesses, business plans, you know, and learn how to create a business uh, is one element of what they are, uh, you know, working on up there. And so that's new for the collaborative. And that's something that we, uh, you know, um, are brought on board this year and are looking to expand, and that'll help us provide more services up in Franklin County as well. So, Executive Director Todd Gassett, does the collaborative not just design the program, but also helps those uh, instructors that are going to be working with students in the program? Do you actually work on curriculum? Do you actually 
provide resources to people within these programs? What does the collaborative do? One of our major things, and one of the things, particularly in education circles that CES is known for, is uh, professional development. So as I said, uh, the other 23 collaboratives in the state, and there's only one other out here, it's Lower Pioneer Valley Collaborative uh, down in West Springfield, and they run a vocational school as well as some special education programming. Um, We don't focus as much on programs. That's a small part of what we do. We uh, do just about everything else to support school districts. And so professional development is a really big part of what we do and who we are at CES. And so we provide educational uh, professional development for teachers, for administrators, for support staff, everybody from nurses to uh, art teachers to PE teachers to content teachers uh, to principals, assistant principals, superintendents. Um, Exposing them to way of ways to do their job better. Correct. And one of the nice things about, you know, working at CES is we can help shape what education looks like. And so we can help encourage and support the implementation of necessary change in public education. And that's one of the things that really excited me about coming into this position. Does, um, do a, does a district reach out to you and say, we need help in this area? Or do you reach out to the district and say, we could provide help in this area? Both. So we both, you know, it is a rare day where I don't get a call from, uh, you know, a superintendent or administrator uh, or somebody saying, hey, Todd, I got this problem or there's this we want to do and we're not quite sure how to get there. And so the nice thing is, you know, as I started with, we have a lot of really smart, really creative, really caring people that work for us. So, you know, rarely do I have the answer off the top of my head, but I say, hey, listen, this person, uh, let me hook you up with them. And if we don't have something, tell us what you want and we'll work to create it for you. Uh, and the nice thing is we're a nonprofit. So we're not, you know, we can do things at a reasonable price uh, for our, particularly for our member districts, districts who get a discount for our services. But we provide services statewide uh, for any district that's looking for assistance. Hey, Todd, it's Dan. Um, how do you know what to do when a school has a problem? Like, How do you know what best practices are in solving their problems, I guess is my question. So we have, our consultants have years and years of experience and specialized experience. Uh, we have one person who specializes in the IEP process. Uh, so the, the development of individual education plans, what it looks like, what needs to be is current on all the changes that happen How to with assess that process. and determine what this particular student needs in order to be able to uh, uh, fulfill our aspirations for good education. Correct. That, that's what we're talking about in terms of an individualized educational plan. But how do you create it so that a system so that it could be malleable enough to fit every student's needs? Correct. And yet, um, you know, routine and systematic enough uh, that there's consistency as well. Uh, and so, and looking at how do we shape the development of those education teams so that they fun- are high functioning, including student and, and parent input in the process. So that's just one example. Because, and so we have, um, you know, experts in curriculum work. Uh, it can be content. Uh, we have consultants on staff who may not be full-time, but we know who they are and we know where they are. And we can say, okay, oh, so you have a, mat- you have a question about math. 
let's grab this math consultant, we'll hook them up with you, mm-hmm. and we'll set it up, and they can provide direct professional development mm-hmm. to your teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what we have the capacity to do. Mm-hmm. And that takes the load off of superintendents and principals mm-hmm. to, to come up with the answers. Mm-hmm. They can bring the problems to us, and then we can work to kind of do that heavy lifting to come up with some solutions that they can implement. Mm-hmm. But I know, Todd, guess that a lot of the problems that our local school districts face are ones that are really difficult for the collaborative to deal with. Under-enrollment issues or transportation in this rural area where you, wanna, you don't want a kid on a bus for 50 minutes going to and from school. You want to find different ways of doing that. Can the collaborative, get, given that those are the problems, how does the collaborative fit into sort of help ease the burden? You know, we've done some work in that area. Those those are really knotty problems that, uh, you know, are really statewide. Uh, we've done some things like working with Mass Hire uh, to help stimulate, uh, you know, the number of bus drivers uh, that uh, are in the pipeline to encourage people to become bus drivers. Hire, that's H-I-R-E. A shortage. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we've done things like, you know, kind of trying to set districts up or connect them with um, CDL classes, uh, commercial drivers, so people can get to commercial driver's licenses because you need one of those to be a bus driver. And so things like that, but it's hard. Uh, and we've met with limited success, to be perfectly honest. Doesn't mean we can't stop trying, but it, yeah, some of those are pro- really problematic. Okay, it's Dan again with a question I want to ask you, and it's a little uncomfortable asking you this question, but I'll ask it anyways here. What, have you ever been able to um, take, let's say, suggestions from teachers, principals, and bring that back to DESE, the state uh, institution that regulates education? And the reason I'm asking this is because I have talked to quite a few teachers or who used to be teachers in this area. And one of their main complaints that I've heard from multiple teachers is, no, I love the kids and I love the teaching. I hate the bureaucracy. I hate all the rules that are coming down on us, how they don't let us just teach the materials. And that seems to be a barrier for why a lot of people who love being in the classroom, love teaching experience. So I hear from you, you provide a lot of solutions from, let's say, a system-wide going down to teachers or students level, but does it ever go back up? Most assuredly. Um, You know, personally, I've been doing this, I've been in public education now for 23 years. Uh, And so, and of that, uh, 19 of it has been either as a building or district administrator or in my current role. And so through that time period, I've developed a lot of um, relationships with people at the Department of Education. Uh, And those people have kind of moved up the food chain Mm. uh, as well. And so now are in, you know, Positions where they have decision-making authority. Yeah, um, yeah. I have no. Was problem. I wrong about what I said about you? One, no, you no. were one hundred percent slam dunk on uh, yeah. with your kind of characterization. A lot of times, bureaucracy can get in the in the way of instruction. Yeah. Uh, quite frankly, you know where you know get the focus on teaching and the kids as opposed right. to generating numbers that we can slap into a spreadsheet somewhere. Right. Um, that's a constant push me pull you kind of thing with uh, with Desi. Well, I, I'm enjoying this conversation. We're going to have to take a break. I just want to, Dan, your question was uh, a really important one. Yesterday we had uh, a conversation with Elizabeth Deneve. She's a school committee member up in Greenfield for the Greenfield School Committee, and she was talking about this um, curriculum that is this academy that made application mm. for approval, uh, had which 
begins with um, modern psychology was designed by Satan, uh, an anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-people kind of curriculum, and the DESE, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, requires that school committees approve such applications for a private school, and yet gives no guidance about where the line between denying someone their religious beliefs and denying someone their vile beliefs uh, falls. Last night, they went into executive session. I could report as a follow-up to yesterday's conversation that, in fact, the Greenfield School Committee approved the application because DESE requires it and gives them no guidance. Part of what you're talking about, Dan, we're going to kind of back and talk more about what the Collaborative for Educational Services does with its executive director, Todd Gazda, who only wants to use his job to make the world better. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Our beloved local hero farms. Way too much rain. Wiping out crops wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms, think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page and kick in what you can. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We're going to continue our conversation with Executive Director Todd Gazda of the uh, Collaborative for Educational Services. I'm wondering, uh, Director Gazda, what what the collaborative, uh, what its relationship is with uh, sort of social service kind of agencies mm. uh, that uh, deal with youth services and the like. Well, you, 
as I said earlier, we are the largest collaborative in the state, uh, both revenue-wise and geographically. Part of the reason we're so large uh, revenue-wise is that uh, we have two very large contracts. So we have about mm, $42 million in revenue uh, anticipated for FY22. Uh, but unlike school districts, we are a um, – we – we're a nonprofit, so we kind of have to earn it. We don't get $42 million up front and spend it down. We kind of have to earn it through either direct services or grants as we go along. But two of our largest contracts are one with the Department of Youth Services for the state of Massachusetts. So DYS, the Department of Youth Services, has 38 youth detention centers across the state of Massachusetts. We run the schools in every one of them. Uh, we hire the teachers, we do the administrators, we do the curriculum, uh, we run the schools. So we basically run a school system that's the size of Massachusetts. Uh, we have about 200 teachers that work for us, either in DYS or its companion program, sup uh, SEIS, which is Supplemental Education and Institutional Setting, so it provides special ed education services through the Department of Education um, so the, for the students kids either who are incarcerated. Or Delinquency. These are kids who got in trouble. It's more if than truancy. It's... We call them criminal charges. Yes, but they can't be called criminals because they're juveniles. So, and you're talking about educating them while they're in custody. Correct. We also educate any student in. Department of Public Health or Department of Mental Health residential facilities uh, across the state of Massachusetts. So those two combined are about $21 million. Those are two very large contracts. So that's that's like half of our revenue in a given year, um, which, you know, the revenue, you say revenue, but most of that goes back out in salaries and things like that. Um, and so, but by running those programs statewide, it helps us provide a robust infrastructure for the organization that helps us more fully be able to support our member districts. And so that's one of the companion uh, benefits. Uh, we only have a minute and a half left, but in, in, in a minute, what kind of other social service stuff do you actually do at the collaborative for the systems you work with. All right, here's my elevator speech to finish it off. All right. Uh, you know, we have a Healthy healthy Families and Children's Division that does community wellness and outreach. We have a mass migrant education program that does uh, helps provide services to the migrant youth and their families. Uh, we have the 21st Century programs that do, we have about 18 after-school sites in our member districts that provides after-school and out-of-school and summer programming. Uh, we have an early childhood division that does uh, a lot of early childhood training, uh, trauma-informed uh, teaching practices, a lot of professional development for early childhood providers and preschools. Um, we have a... Uh, let's see, special education surrogate program that connects uh, students whose adults may not be in the picture with adults who can help them navigate the special education process. That wasn't an elevator speech. That was a tease. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about more of this because this stuff is fascinating and important. And um, look, what the collaborative does, it works with all those teachers that are building our future and uh, the, the students that are our future. And um, I know I... Not only did I teach at a community college, two of my children are educators at a high school level. I'm, uh, I know how dreams can be fulfilled um, by schools and by educators. And you, Todd Gazda, we have much to be appreciative of. And that's why we're going to exploit you next month by hearing more about social services and what the collaborative does. Meanwhile, the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk. Like Tad, Todd Gazda, 
Walk the Walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at hilltownfamilies.org. Massachusetts now requires you to recycle fluorescent and other mercury-containing bulbs. A tiny amount of mercury is an essential element in energy-efficient lighting. But when you throw these bulbs in the trash, they can break and release mercury into the environment. Do your part. Keep mercury out of the environment. Recycle used fluorescent bulbs. For convenient recycling solutions, visit lamprecycle.org or almr.org. Homeowners, visit earth911.org for a drop-off center near you. Brought to you by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2.